Matthew 5, 27, Jesus is speaking. He's continuing his discourse, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The words of Jesus are intense enough just reading them. He, he busts into our culture and with just a few sentences completely demolishes the culture, the present-day culture when he was living, or excuse me, the culture when he was living and the present-day culture in which we live. And he says it's, it's not just about keeping your body from physical adultery. He does what he does all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes for the heart. He's always pressing deeper than the written codified law, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He wants to have our hearts. And when he has our hearts, I promise you, 100 times out of 100, when he has our hearts, he will have our bodies. And so it is very possible for a message like I'm going to share to be preached about you straining and striving and resisting and fighting and toiling and determining never to use your body in a sexually inappropriate way. And you might, by chance, be able to cruise through life in that way, but it's not the same thing as giving your heart fully to Jesus in surrender, confession, repentance, and commitment and trusting that his love for you will produce a love for him in you that will regulate your actions. So he's always going for the heart. And it's important to me that all of us recognize that though the expectation is clear, the only way that we can actually fulfill what's going to be shared this morning is if he has our hearts. And so let's, let's just walk through some of this. I think most of us would be a little taken aback if we were to do an intentional survey of the Bible to find out what does the scripture say about human sexuality? Because most people would think that it probably doesn't say a whole lot of definitive stuff except leaving us with the puritanical notion that sex is bad, don't do it. That's kind of like the other extreme. The culture goes to this extreme, and the extreme of religion takes it to an equally sinful mindset that says sex is bad. I want to start off by saying it's not bad. It's a gift from God, and what God gives is good. But it is completely uh, boundaried in ways that reflect his heart, and I want to talk to you about that. So there are clear boundaries that are established by Jesus here. And the boundaries for the married are this, heterosexual monogamy. Heterosexual monogamy is the boundary that God sets for sex. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. Now listen, in the heart of God, the issue of human sexuality has never been complex. It was from the very beginning that God designed to give one woman and one man to each other. He even designed us anatomically to bring pleasure to one another. And then he says the confines of that is to be a lifelong commitment one to another in which the expression of our sexuality can be explored, it can be matured, and it is meant to be enjoyed. And we'll see later, the, the scriptures say the marriage bed is undefiled. And so it's actually sacred. God gives sexual intimacy to foster a deep oneness between a husband and a wife. And that is to grow in time as the marriage grows, as long as both husband and wife are physically able. Also, I want to mention this. Children often come forth from the heterosexual monogamous union that God has designed. So it's not only just simply for the husband and the wife, but it is a vital part of the social structure that we see in the Word of God, that God wants Adam and Eve and all couples to replenish the earth and to bring forth children into the world. And the only way that that can happen in a healthy manner, a God-blessed manner, is through a marital union between a man and a woman. There are so many tangents, by the way, that I can run down today, and I'm going to stay very disciplined. Um, adultery that Jesus mentions here, it occurs, just in case somebody may say, I'm, I'm not sure what that term encompasses. Adultery occurs when a husband or a wife steps outside of that boundary that God gives, and they engage in sexual activity with somebody that is not their husband or wife. Adultery, by the way, can also occur when a single person gets involved with somebody else that's married. That's fornication and adultery. And Jesus goes back to the law of Moses. He says to them, you know the seventh commandment. It says, don't commit adultery. It is very clear, and it always has been. Now, I recognize that this sounds old-fashioned, but I'm going to promise you, it's not old-fashioned, it's New Testament. And so it is the will of God to this very day that our sexuality only be expressed in terms of a man and a woman in a heterosexual marriage, a monogamous relationship, never stepping outside of that boundary for any sexual gratification whatsoever. And when that happens, sex is gloriously good. Now, if you want to squirm, you squirm today, but the reason why I'm going to be plain spoken about this is because of the vagueness of the church or the silence of the church. Our voice, the biblical voice, is now no longer predominant, and the voice of a sinful, often depraved culture has set the boundaries for human sexuality. And so we must speak of that because there has never been a more lied-to generation than the millennials and younger. Their whole life they've been lied to about sexuality. Is it any wonder we have massive confusion? But I will submit this. Marital sex is gloriously good. It's even spiritual when experienced within the, the uh, protective and the holy confines of a marital covenant. And Jesus says, don't transgress that boundary. We'll say more about that in a moment, but... There's also boundaries for the unmarried, and if you're unmarried in here today, um, I don't have an easy word for you, but I do have a true word for you. What are the boundaries for the unmarried? It's very simple. There is no lawful outlet for the unmarried concerning sex. Now, I know that that flies in the face of everything that maybe we feel, everything that our culture tells us, 
There is, has been over the years, the intentional loosening and diluting of God's holy standard in the culture. And that, that's not just simply from the culture. It is a, a lifelong aspiration of the enemy. And we'll find out more about why in a moment because that sexuality between a husband and wife is a picture of the union between Christ and his bride. And so the, the, the enemy loves to distort that. But I, I'm actually going to read this paragraph at the risk of becoming pedantic and boring this morning. I need to be precise in what I say because we have many unmarried people in our faith family. And the reality is, is as we are pressing into the Lord, as we're seeking his presence, his power, his glory, his name to be magnified. And listen, it's so easy to feel it, sense it, understand it, and long for it when we gather together in a setting like this on Sunday where nobody's fornicating, nobody's watching porn, nobody's you know introducing ideas into their mind or into their bodies we're behaving well and it's easy to get it in here but that's not what i'm talking about that's that's a religious spirit if you tidy it up on sunday but then you live in opposition to that the rest of your life or the rest of the week we've got to come to this place where we understand if we really want his presence and we do if we really want full deliverance on every area of our lives we do but we cannot approach this any longer casually um, with a cavalier attitude or being vague about what God says. And so let me just give you this. Any sexual activity outside the confines of heterosexual marriage, according to the Bible, constitutes this word fornication. And the English word fornication comes from a, a Greek word, porneia, which you can clearly hear that we get our word pornography from porneia and it's broadly used this greek word is broadly used to describe any sexual contact outside of the bounds of marriage now i'm going to be a little explicit here and i i did forewarn you but you can easily see here that these activities would include premarital heterosexual sex that's fornication any type of sexual stimulation and or climax that does not include penetration any and all homosexual activity, masturbation, pornography, oral sex, pedophilia, and bestiality. The Bible actually speaks to many of these things specifically in ways that when we read it, we're like, I can't believe God put that in the Word, but He did. You need to understand that he is deeply interested in our sexuality, not simply because of the physical aspects of it, but because of what happens to two people when they come into sexual contact, which I'll touch on in a moment. Now, the church has long been silent in discussing all of these issues, and because we've chosen silence, because of the awkwardness of speaking on these sensitive topics, now the voice of authority that our children and our grandchildren and even our generation, the voice of authority concerning human sexuality no longer comes from God's heart as expressed through the church and through the word. It comes from unbiblical sources and even depraved sources. And so we have to reclaim some surrendered ground. I'm not out to redeem the culture. That's not my assignment. My assignment is to move the boulder of sexual sin out of the way so that what God has awaiting us behind it is accessible to the church. 
this blockade that is taking place with our mindsets and our acceptance of the culture's version of sexuality. Let me just give you some verses. I don't think any of these will be up on the screen. All of these notes, by the way, in detail are at mynewbridge.church. You scroll down a quarter page and you'll see today's notes. I recommend getting them if you really want to study out what the scripture says. But I'll give you this. In Acts 15, 20, the Gentiles in the early church were commanded to abstain from fornication. It was a priority. And the Gentile world came into salvation with a very loose view of sexuality. And when they became Christians, it became a predominant thing for the apostles and the leaders to say, your sexual um, uh, appetites must be fulfilled in a way that Christ prescribes according to the word of God. Fornication is also condemned by the apostle Paul, both heterosexual and homosexual. In Romans 1.29, church, let's be equal opportunity offenders. Romans chapter 1, everybody thinks, yeah, preach, on, preach against homosexuality. Read the chapter. That's not the only thing that's mentioned there. It speaks of, because with, with the, I think, sometimes out-of-balance pushback on homosexu- the homosexual agenda, while we remain vague or, or presuming that everybody understands about heterosexual sin, um, I don't think that that's the way to approach this. He, he condemns both in Romans 1. Fornicators are seen to be disciplined in the local church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, A hard word, and this is what I'm preaching in the next service, those who engage in fornication degrade Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 15 through 19 are some of the most cringeworthy verses in all of the Bible. Because what Paul says is, when we, the body of Christ, engage in sexual activity in terms of fornication or adultery, we are taking Christ's body and joining it sexually to somebody. We don't preach that, and we don't think that, but it's true. Fornication is characteristic of those who are unsaved. Galatians 5.19 indicates that those who live a lifestyle of open, unrepentant fornication are not born again. It's clearly there in Scripture in Galatians 5 and also 1 Corinthians 6. And Christians are actually called to repent of the sin of fornication in 2 Corinthians 12, 21. That's that's what we're giving opportunity for today, is just for us to say, Lord, my thoughts, my, my actions, my attitudes, my words have been misaligned with your heart on this. I want to come into alignment with your heart in any way that I need to. I repent, Lord, of what I have believed. I repent, Lord, of what I've spoken. I repent, Lord, of what I've done. That's the invitation from the Lord today. The invitation is not step into shame and feel horrible about yourself. That's not what God's inviting us to do today. The Lord is saying this, step into me and be delivered. Step into me and experience grace. Step into me and be set free. That's the message, but in order for that to happen, our part is repenting. We change our mind, metanoia. We change the way we think, which leads to a change of behavior. And then if there is any doubt, in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, we read this, this is the will of God for you, that you abstain from fornication. People want to know, what's the will of God for my life? Start right there. Start right there. This is the will of God. Now, without running too far down this rabbit trail, I do want to say 
The, I, I have often intersected. I've, I've been in local church ministry since 1997, full time. And I've often intersected primarily young adults who sense a calling. They, they sense an inner stirring. They sense destiny on their life. And, and yet they've hit this wall and, and they're losing their clarity and they're losing their unction and they're losing their joy. And as I sit down to work primarily, almost exclusively with young men, a couple of young women over, over the years, always with somebody else in the office, but we're talking about sexuality and I find out that this young person will be engaged in some form of fornication, some form of sexual activity and they're not married. And, and I say to them, that's why you don't know what to do with your life. There may be more, but it's not independent of that. You say, well, Jeff, how can you be judgmental like that? Because the Bible says that the will of God for us is to abstain from fornication. And if we're not obeying the will of God that is clearly revealed, why should we expect to be able to discern the will of God which is not as clearly revealed? And so we have to recognize that this is not some side issue. So the boundaries for the married are monogamy, heterosexual monogamy. The boundaries for the unmarried are very intense, that there is no lawful sexual outlet for those that are unmarried. Now, some people might think, well, what in the world am I supposed to do? Well, I'll, I'll tell you here in a few minutes one of the things you can do. I get it. Listen, I get it. Hey, I think it's very important here. This is, um, um, I, I just want to be clear. I was not saved till I was 24 years old. And from age 14 to age 24, I lived an indulgent life in every possible way that can be indulged in by a, a teenager and young adult in the 1980s. And so I'm not coming off as a person who is aloof or... Um, unsympathetic concerning the difficulty of a word like this but when I was saved at age 24 I didn't get married for three years and I'm going to tell you and I'm not trying to be cute or funny or you know I'm uh, elicit some snickering in the audience but I'm going to tell you those in certain senses those are a very difficult three years and so I had to come to the place where I, I had to determine Will I continue to live by the will of Jeff Lyle concerning sexuality, or will I bow to Jesus and trust that what he commands, he empowers? And he did, by the grace of God. And I thank God for my wedding day. It was an awesome day. Hallelujah. Amen? But that's what, it's, it's holy and it's good. It's holy and good. And so when we go further, let me talk to the married for a moment. Because it's not like when you get married, sexual temptation vanishes. No. Most of the people I have counseled concerning sexual temptation have, have been married people. Sexual failure have been married people. And so when we're talking about blessings for the married, we, we got to realize that the church has to communicate biblically about sex. And whereas the preachers here, we mention it regularly, but this is a day, at least one day, where the Lord is saying, I'm addressing this across the whole base because I'm going to offer an opportunity for grace to hit the grime. The shower of God's mercy, grace, and love 
to dispel the calcification of a soul and the, the, the sense of shame and dirtiness and failure and the accusation of the enemy. God just wants to address it because when, when we bring something into the light, we become the master of it. When we keep it in the shadows, it masters us. And so we, we press forward. And, and let me just give you a few verses. These will be up on the screen. And yeah, just this is the Bible, okay? I don't have to apologize for this. Proverbs chapter 5. Verses 15 through 19. He's speaking in metaphor about sexuality. He says to uh, his son, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. What's he talking about? He clarifies it here. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated in her love. That's right. You read it rightly. The holy scriptures teach a man, and by application, a woman too, to always stay satisfied in their spouse's body. To the man, it says, stay satisfied in your wife's body and hers alone. Don't, don't let your fountain stream out towards a stranger. He says, keep it there. And so the primary call here is for a man to delight himself in his wife, never looking elsewhere for his sexual needs. And it's, of course, it's written to man, but the application is for both husbands and wives. So, so this is for married couples. And guys, we should want to give ourselves physically to one another over the course of our marriage. Hear me on this, especially if you're young or especially if you're failed or you're newly saved and you have a broken sexual history. Sex in marriage is not dirty. It's not dirty. It, it is God-ordained and it is meant to be gloriously good. And he smiles on that. 1 Corinthians 7 Paul writes this, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Don't miss that, single people. Paul says there is actually a viable reason to get married, and that is that you might not sexually sin. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Can you believe your Bible? is that instructional and transparent about sex. It says, lest you sin sexually, get you a husband, get you a wife. That, it's the Bible. You do realize that as generations have gone on, people have married later, and parallel to that later marrying age, sexual uh, revolution, sexual promiscuity, sexual disease, sexual sin has increased. And the reality seems to be that not too long after adolescence, and obviously I'm not advocating people go out at 14 and 15 and get married, not in our culture, but I will say this, there's a danger in waiting too long sometimes. And what it requires, not that you have to run out and get married today because you just can't contain, but I'm going to tell you something. The, the, the important part to remember here is there may come a time where you're in a relationship 
And in that dating or courting, or whatever you want to call it, relationship, the temptation has grown so strong that you're failing, that you're sinning. And the clear commandment of Scripture would be this. Break it off or make it official. And, and, and so often we just kind of wait, we want to make sure, and we just keep leaving ourselves open. But another part of this is husbands and wives, listen, this is, this is the Bible. We actually don't have autonomy over our own bodies. We don't. And so there is this other sense that when we might be tempted to say no, and there are different seasons in life, and I understand all of that, but the general approach would be stay sexually engaged with each other while you are physically able so that a spiritual sin does not arise through your lack of ability to, to control your impulses. Now, when we're talking about the, the, the married aspect of sexual intimacy, uh, I like what Hebrews 13, 4 says. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now watch this. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You have two balanced weights there. You have this one call by the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, keep the marriage bed undefiled. What does that mean? Keep it between the husband and wife. Um, I'm not going to give like a, a, a conference on Christian sex here, but I just want to say this. Because of unbiblical, puritanical influence and the concept that sex is dirty and, you know, can't be creative, um, I just want to say that's unbiblical. The, the marriage bed is undefiled. And whatever is mutually pleasing to a husband and wife and only the husband and wife. I'm not talking about bringing in a third party or anything perverted like that, but the husband, whatever is mutually pleasing and in agreement, it is honorable and undefiled. And so that means there is room in the marital sexual intimacy for creativity, for experimentation, for communication. And remember, especially if you're newly married or young married, you got a whole life together. There's going to be seasons where everything's clicking on all eight cylinders and everything's great. There's going to be other seasons where for a host of reasons, it may just not feel vibrant at that time. But stay in communication with each other and dialogue about this. It's, it's not just your bodies coming together. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual union and the Lord welcomes that. But again, that's for married couples. And then back to the Sermon on the Mount. Let me get these last couple of verses because Jesus is about to get radical with us concerning sex. I mean, radical. It's very interesting to me that the volume of Scripture in the New Testament where you find most of the teaching on sex is written by two unmarried men, Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. And these are two men that aren't writing from a position, I want to be honoring here, but a position of having an outlet. These were two celibate men. And so when, when we are reading their words, it's not un unsympathetic. Scripture says that Jesus is a high priest who's not un unmoved or untouched or unsympathetic by the, the, our infirmities, our weaknesses. And so he made it through all of life, tempted at all points like we are yet without sin. And so when he speaks here, this is where I want us to get in our hearts. This is where we need to adopt the heart of God 
concerning um, human sexuality in a generation that tells us the exact opposite in every media stream, every source of entertainment, every non-Christian song uh, industry, music industry, Sex is aggrandized. It is, in effect, along with money, the two-headed God of America. Sex and money. And generations, if you're probably, well, I would say if you're 75 in the room, the sexual revolution happened under your generation's watch. So unless you're in your 90s in this house, pretty much your whole life, or at least the adult life, of all that are in this house has been under the deception of a culture that has an anything goes mindset concerning sex. That's not the heart of the father. That's in opposition of the heart of the father. But the problem is, is we, we have our convictions eroded. It's like the waves hitting a, 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 a wall, um, a, like a, a peninsula it just erodes it a little bit at a time where that that conviction shrinks and then finally it's parallel with the thing that's been eroding it and so we've we've got to step up we, we've got to come into agreement with the heart of the father i sense that now like right now this is not a topical message for us to consider it is a right now like literally in this moment in this day in this week it is an invitation from the lord to say this i have something gloriously good it is myself i'm going to unleash it on you but i'm waiting for you to repent i'm waiting for the church to repent i'm waiting for an agreement a holy, broken, humbled agreement dependent upon the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God that says, Lord, we agree with you and now we depend on you for help. That's what he's waiting for. And so Jesus in verse 28 exposes some carnal behaviors. Bear with me. I know this is not fun, but it's healthy and it's right. Fun comes after we come into agreement with this, by the way. That's where the joy breaks forth. First of all, there's a look. Jesus says this, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman. So Jesus is speaking to the men in the audience. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this. It is entirely possible for a man and or a woman to look at somebody and cognitively appreciate the beauty of that person. It is absolutely possible for that to occur. Um, all of the religious Hebrews that were in the audience understood that committing sexual adultery with the body was sinful. And so they would have, as Orthodox Hebrews, modified their behavior accordingly. And that would have been an expression of their desire to keep the law of Moses and to honor God. But here Jesus, remember what he said, he said, you've heard that it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you. So what Jesus is doing is he's bringing us deeper into the revelation of the heart of the Father. He's bringing us deeper into what actually pulses through the divine veins of the Son of God. He says everybody that looks at a woman. So he's taking the don't touch prohibition of the law and he's, he's now saying don't lingeringly look. And that's not law, that's love. Well, matter of fact, let me get to the next segment of that. 
So there's the look. It's possible to look. I'm, I'm going to be very honest here, as if I haven't been this whole message, but most males cannot look long without committing some type of mental sin. It sounds pitiful, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, when the glance becomes a stare, something happens in flesh that is trained to, to objectify the object that it's staring at. And so for many years, when I have counseled young men and some guys just broken and they're just starting out, um, my counsel used to be, look at the ground. I literally used to give that counsel. Look at the ground. Well, that might make them survive the moment, but it does nothing to change the heart. The answer is, love God first and love people next. And when I love God, I won't want to lust after one of his daughters. And when I love her, I won't want to objectify her. I talked with Amy quite a bit about this over the last week. And there was a part of me that wishes she was up here preaching to the women on this issue. Because she was saying, because I was going over some stuff I was going to say, and she was like, yeah, when you say that, here's how the women will hear it. And she was talking about women that maybe are not in alignment. Now, ladies, y'all are smart. Y'all have learned, and I'm just talking to women in general. Y'all have learned what will draw the attention of a man. You know. You know when they're not looking at your face when you're talking to them. You've all experienced that more than likely. And there is this something within the heart of many women, not all, hopefully not all Christian women, that likes to be admired, likes to be looked at. But I want to go ahead, and I'm, I'm, I'm going on the authority of my wife on this one. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, when he's looking at you a long time, uh, he's not valuing you. He's not saying, what a lovely creature. Oh, what beauty the Lord hath made. He's not. And the same putting yourself out there physically that draws the, in your mind, the admiration of the young Brad Pitt looking guy also draws the attention of the pervy 500 pound ball headed toothless man. I'm preaching. I just want you to know that. And listen, I mean, there are times where we have to be very blunt about this. What I'm saying is this. Most men have never lusted after a woman's face. The countenance beholds, it just reveals beauty. But when, brothers, when, when, when our eyes move from the countenance that reflects and radiates beauty, it might be possible to appreciate her form. The Bible even speaks of the figure of a few women, and it does it in a very holy way. But most men can't go there without sinning. So what do we do? We must fall in love with this Lord who, who has given us power and preserved our eyes uh, to, to, for the wives of our youth and make a covenant with our eyes that we will not look upon a young woman. And it's not an easy battle because everything in our culture says, look, stare, lust. And if we don't have a consecrated heart to the Lord, I'm not even asking you to try harder. Trying harder doesn't work until your heart is broken for the glory of God, 
for the love of God, for the grace of God, for not wanting anything to break a moment of fellowship with him. So it is the love for God, his love for us, which reciprocates our love for him, that we say we don't want to do this. Our flesh may have been trained in this, but our hearts, Lord, are, are, are now being trained to love you foremost and never to objectify one of your daughters by making her something I want to own in a moment of my own pleasure. So Jesus says it's lustful intent. That's the thing. It's not just glancing. It's when we look with a purpose. And it's a consuming look. It's I'm looking at you because there's something in me that wants to objectify you so I can consume you mentally or physically. And ladies, that's, that's not the kind of attention any woman should want not a healthy daughter of God. And so the Lord's calling both men and women out of that mindset. Um, and Jesus says this, when that happens, we're actually already guilty of committing adultery. And remember what he's saying, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment, everybody knew that. He's like, yeah, but when you're looking at her and envisioning her in a lustful way to consume for yourself, you're actually already committing adultery with her in your heart. And notice what he's doing. He's just going after our hearts. Um, it's easier to restrain your body than it is to restrain your heart. You can't restrain your heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know their own heart, the prophet asked. And so what do we do? We bring our hearts to the Lord and we say, Lord, left alone, I, don't, I will never win this battle. I, I will I've proven that to you, Lord. On my own, I can't win, but Lord, I'm not on my own. I'm coming to you today by your invitation of grace and mercy, and I'm believing that you can transform my heart heart and the flesh friends was is never meant to be sanctified you don't sanctify your flesh it's got to be crucified it's got to be brought to the lord and it's got to be put to death and when it's put to death something new is raised in its place new longings new desires new honor so jesus wants us to come into alignment with the heart of god on this thing he promises to provide guidance and power and breakthrough. Brothers, listen, you're not a slave to your longings. You're not. They are no match for the Son of God. They aren't. There's men in the room that could stand up right now and talk about how they were once a slave to this thing called lust. By the way, pornography is not the problem. Pornography is the vehicle through which the problem is expressed. The problem is a heart problem. The problem is not an eye problem. Now the eyes are involved, but the problem is a heart problem. And when the heart, when the core, the source of the problem is remedied, then the other things, and listen, I'm not saying porns, I'm indifferent to it. What I'm saying is, I'm talking to Christians. I'm saying this, that if we will have that heart work done by the Lord, then we won't have to hear 50 messages on the ills of pornography. Because we'll be so consumed with falling in the love in love with the one that saves us and gives us breakthrough that things will begin to change so the very last two verses 
Um, he expects us to live in consecration of our bodies. Consecrated bodies are expected. It's not old-fashioned, it's New Testament. The idea that this is old-time fundamental hell and brimstone preaching is a mischaracterization. This is Jesus talking. His words are timeless. He understood that the word of God, this very sermon, as he's speaking it, he knew it would be preserved and it would be applied and preached in every generation after his life. So he wants us to get very radical about this. Listen to his language. First of all, there's a call for each one of us to diagnose ourselves. Ladies, I I love you. You don't get a free pass on this. This is all of us. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, And then he adds in later, if your right hand causes you to sin. So the the question that we have to ask is, do do I have an issue? It's going to be a minute, so you just, thank you, but just give me just a moment. She's she's good. She came up exactly when she's supposed to, but I'm probably going to go about five more minutes. Do we have an issue of sexual lusting in our hearts? You have to ask that, and you have to answer it without qualification. I'm not as bad as I used to be or, yeah, not compared to a lot, or I'm managing it, I'm managing it. That's, I've, I've heard that so often. It's like, well, yeah, every now and then, but I'm managing it. No, 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 no. We don't manage these things. We have to be delivered. We must be delivered. You know, you don't, you don't let a jaguar roam around your house and manage it. Eventually, eventually it's going to pounce. It, it's going to do some destruction. Why? Because the nature of that beast is to shred And the nature of lust is to tear and shred. So he says, if. Now, some of you may not have an issue with that. Hallelujah. Have mercy on those that do. Give grace to those that do. We don't need to condemn anybody. The Lord is not condemning the violator. What he's doing is he's saying, this is an issue. I want you to get radical about it. And you can't get radical about it if if our attitude is kind of ho-hum. We can't be radical about it. It's a radical problem. He says, enter into a radical heart posture about it. He says, if your right eye offends you, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, obviously, he's he's not advocating self-mutilation. Because again, it's, it's really not an eye problem or a hand problem. Um, it, it's a heart problem. But he's saying this is how serious we need to take this thing. He calls us to think radically about the issue of, of a lustful heart. And by the way, all the way throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is constantly calling us to take a, a stepped-up radical approach to following him and walking our lives out in the kingdom of God. And I, I want us to remember why. Why do we want to be radical about this thing? Well, for this sin especially, there's so much on the line. We, we can't be in fellowship with Jesus when we live in any sin, when, when, when we're indulging or tolerating repetitive sin in our life. We can't be in fellowship with Jesus. What light does fellowship have? Uh, what what fellowship does light have with darkness? They just don't go together. We can't experience the beauty of His presence when we live in that. And lust is no different. By the way, shame creeps in. 
and it stays when we're bound to sexual lust in our heart. It is a tool of the enemy, and the enemy exploits shame. You live with accusation. I told, I whispered in Billy's ear right before I came up here that um, I've, I've been fine all week. People have said, Jeff, thank you for preaching on this. How are you doing? Are you okay? You know, and I've, I've been cruising. I've been cruising. It's just like, I know I've got the word of the Lord in both of these services. But when I was sitting down there, there was an empty seat beside me. I think a demon sat in it and started accusing me, taking me historically through seasons of my life prior to coming to Jesus where I had violated everything I'm talking about. And I thought to myself, I just told, I, I prayed and I just said, uh, Lord, I'm not listening to this demon. Will you be merciless unto this demon? I ask the Lord to be merciless when the enemy comes around. It's like, Lord, don't have any mercy. Shred that thing. Then I whispered in <laughs> Billy's ear, and Billy put his hand on my arm and prayed for me, and I was fine. But the point is this, shame. Your life stops spiritually when you're bound up in shame. And the, the Lord is actually wanting to release men and women from shame this morning. That's what he's really wanting. He's like, yeah, I didn't put those chains on you. They're put there by the enemy of your soul. And I, I want to release you. And so when, on, on the issue of, of pornography, I just want to be very clear with this. And it's not just a male problem anymore. It's not. 33% of women look at porn regularly. 33% of women. One out of every three. And I want us all to know this. It's not just, the, the porn industry and pornography is demonically fueled. It is always an open door for the demonic into our lives, always. And so pornography is deeply spiritual, but not in a way that edifies. It's in a way that degrades because it tears at the imago Dei and the, and the, the likeness, the, the image of God in our lives. And so we have to begin to say, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. More importantly, Lord, you love me, and this is not your destiny for my life. So, Lord, I'm tearing it out. I'm cutting it off. I'm honoring all people by not objectifying them sexually. I'm looking to you for every uh, aspect and attribute I need to maintain my vessel in purity in a way that honors you and also honors my fellow man, my fellow woman. And so when we begin to do that, when we begin to agree with the Lord, the Holy Spirit begins to align us with the heart of God. We meet power, overcoming power, literally. I, I, I feel so strongly on this right now. There's, there's people in the room today that say, I really, I hear you, I believe that, I agree with that, I don't think I'll ever be free. And I'm telling you, you will be. You will be. You will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be free. I mean, I'm talking free in a way that will reintroduce you to the freshness and the breath of God in a way that you haven't experienced since that thing got its claws in you. And so I'm just done. So when, when now, <laughs> the invitation, I'm just going to ask you to stand. I'm not even asking you to come forward this morning, but I'm just telling you, this is, this is what the heart of the Lord is saying this morning. He's not saying, I'm so sick and tired of you failing in this area. I can't believe after this amount of time, you're still struggling. I can't believe that you get, he's not condemning, he's not shaming. He's not rehearsing every failure in your life in this area up to this point. 
He's not hanging, he's not pinning a scarlet A on, on those that have failed in their marriages. That's not the Lord. What he is doing is he's inviting us to align with a commitment of our wills and a trust from our spirit saying, Lord, I believe you and I repent for being indifferent about this. I repent for being judgmental on others about this. I repent, Lord, for letting my, my convictions get diluted by the culture on this. If need be, there might be specific actions that you need to repent for. And don't listen to the enemy, because anytime a Christian is repenting in an area that's been a stronghold, the enemy is at your shoulder saying, you've done this before and it didn't work. You've done this before, it's not gonna work this time. Don't listen to it. Matter of fact, in the name of Jesus, every lying spirit whispering accusation and defeat, you are evicted from this room by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is our victory. Repent and believe. Church, together, corporately. Can we repent on this attitude and this activity? Can we agree corporately that we will be a body of believers that will love the sexually broken? We will love the homosexual. We will love the transgender. We will love those that are sexually broken because the grace of God only has prevented us from entering into a greater depth of that kind of brokenness. It's only the grace of God. We will love them, but we will love them. And because we love them, we will tell them the truth. We will welcome them. We will invite them. We will help them. We will answer their questions. We will not condemn them, but we will speak truth as I have to you today. We have to be a place that people can run to as a, a refuge to say, I, I, I want help, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get free. There's sexual brokenness everywhere. And God is the healer. He brings it back together. And so in your own way, while I pray a two-minute prayer, not even, I want you in your own way, will you, let, we have to enter into a corporate repentance over this. We have to enter into a corporate repentance. We must be the body the mouth, the mind, the heart, the hands of Jesus on this issue. <sighs> Father, we receive grace and mercy right now. We receive your invitation to step into you on this issue. We say no to any agreement with lies about sexuality. We say yes to your call to press into you, to live out our lives in sexual holiness and honor. For the single, the man or the woman without a spouse, Father, impart hope, power, and victory over temptation in this area of sexual purity. Give it now, right now, Lord. Let there be an endowment. Let there be a belief that the one in them is greater than the one in this world. Let them say yes to Jesus afresh and anew. Empower that surrender, Lord. Empower it. For the married, Lord. Father, let there be holy joy in an undefiled marriage bed. 
Let there be the blissful union without shame, without fear, and full surrender. As husbands and wives renew that beauty of sexual intimacy. Touch bodies, touch lives, touch hearts. Renew the spark that insulates a married couple from straying. Jesus, most of all, we want to love you more than we love anything. Set our hearts aflame for you all over again. You're worthy, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.